Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking today with Peter Bick, the director, producer, and writer of Carbon Nation. Peter is also professor of practice at Arizona State University in both the School of Sustainability and the Cronkite School of Journalism. Via Carbon Nation and Arizona State University, he has met and collaborated with the leading minds from the world of climate, clean energy, military applications, and land use. Peter is currently in production for Carbon Nation 2.0, an ongoing series of short films produced in collaboration with ASU. When not producing films, Peter is also working with scientists and ranchers on soil health research and regenerative grazing practices. Today, I hope to have a wide-ranging conversation, starting with the power and importance of storytelling in the regenerative agriculture movement, about filmmaking and where we need to go next. I'm excited to be speaking with Peter, and I know you'll all be interested to listen in with us. Peter, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. It's my pleasure, Eric, thank you. Um, Given that this is a series of uh, podcasts which are really leveraging the power of storytelling to help people understand not just the, the significance of regenerative agriculture, but the the breadth and the depth and the, the intricacy of, of different elements which make that up. And that you yourself are very much taking a storyteller's perspective or would be a storyteller yourself, both as a filmmaker, but as a speaker, etc. I thought that um, it would be interesting for both our conversation for, for ourselves, but also for our listeners to take a little deeper look into why story is important mm-hmm. and uh, the power that actually has over um, our, our, our psyches, our human psyches and our ability to imagine our way into possibly better situations than those which confront us today. Sounds like a good plan. I'm with you. So, I mean, you've been making films for a long time. Yeah, I, um, I went to film school from 82 to 86 and then started making my first feature length doc in 80, 89 is when we started shooting. And that was called Garbage and it took me about six years to, to make. Um, we did a whole lot of filming first before we really knew 
what our story was going to be. And uh, our tagline was, first we shot it, then we wrote it, then we raised the money. And that's exactly what we did. I don't recommend it, but that's what we did. So it took about six years. And, and we used that six years in the actual telling of the story. So our lead character got older, hair grew. So we, we utilized the, the sloth in my world and also just the time it took to figure out the film. Um, and we, we messed with, we messed with uh, format in a way. We, it was mostly documentary people in it, but we had a fictional character who was playing mostly himself, but just sort of a caricature version of himself, but not that much. And so we, and then we had narration that was completely fabricated to make it work. And that was the longest part is to figure out who that narrator character was. Um, but we were pushing that envelope of what's real, what's not real. And, um, and that was 89 to 96 is that project, 95, 89 to 95. And um, you know, we weren't the first ones to put a fake character in a real world setting. Uh, Robert Altman and Gary uh, Trudeau, who, wrote, who writes the Doonesbury cartoon, they did it in the 88 presidential election. They had a fictional character running in the Democratic primary. And so, um, and then of course, <laughs> before that. So, you know, those were the things that were influencing us. And then we forgot all about it and thought we invented it, of course, and then realized that we did not invent it. So would you say that the story kind of emerged as you, as you gathered material and, and that you, your understanding itself evolved as you gathered material? Yeah, well, the, the original shoot was, um, we got a really good deal on a car back in Louisville, where I'm from, and we both were, roommate, we were roommates and we lived in Los Angeles. So I knew we had to drive from Louisville to Los Angeles. My grandfather had died and left me $10,000 and I wanted to buy a video camera. And so I spent that money, bought a video camera. So I knew I had a camera, knew I was gonna drive and I asked my roommate, hey, you wanna make a movie while we drive across the country? He was like, sure, let's do it. And we were also in a band. And um, so we, we had this sort of sub story just from ourselves of always looking for a drummer in every town we went to. And our idea was just hit the road and let's find stories about garbage. It's a universal. I was trying to make a film that had universal things that people could relate to because all my other films in art school were so obtuse and bizarre. And so we literally, the first story out of Louisville was uh, the Fruit of the Loom um, uh, Fruit of the Loom had a, had a big plant right on Lake Cumberland, Louisville, and it was saying, you let us dump our effluent into the plant or we're going to up and move. And they were the biggest employer at the time in the state of Kentucky. And the state of Kentucky said, well, we get a lot of tourism on Lake Cumberland, so we don't want you to dump that effluent. And Fruit of the Loom left. They went to Arkansas. But our story was just that first part because they were still in Kentucky. And then what happened was each town we went to, all we did was pick up the newspaper. And on the front page of nine out of 10 towns, there was a garbage problem. And we just highlight the names, called the people up, and then filmed that story. And then we had to construct the reason we were going all these towns. And that was our lead character, who was a janitor. That was fiction. He was a, he was a musician. That was real. He wanted to make it. That was real. And he would go to the town to town trying to make it as this fictional filmmaker was following him. And he got further and further away from his music as the filmmaker was just loving it because he was taking him to more and more garbage problems across the U.S. And it was just, it was so, it was serendipity completely. So we used serendipity as our driver. And huh. um, it made for a really, really tough edit, but it was a great shoot. Really fun on the road. 
And it was so not only the story was emerging, but but like you were on the moment in some way. In in that every time you showed up, there was a fresh story. Exactly. And we didn't know that. So we, you know, I tell my students, I teach filmmaking too, documentary filmmaking. I said, you got to get out there to get lucky. Right. You, you, you have to be out there with a camera or you can't get lucky. And so they're always sort of, sometimes you don't have the rigor to just go out and shoot some more. And, you know, just, you just got to keep pushing yourself, pushing yourself. And when I push myself or we push ourselves on the crew, I could show you in all my films, like I was really tired right there. I didn't want to do it. I, I, it but we pushed and we got amazing stuff. Um, and so, so that film was, it was just, a, it was just amazing to meet all these people. Such a great reason to call up strangers and meet them, you know? And we learned a really, really, really important lesson right at the beginning of that film. Um, so uh, we're, we knew we were making a film about garbage. We knew we were starting in Louisville, Kentucky. We knew we were gonna have our guy be a janitor, right? We knew that, kind of. So we thought, let's go, let's go interview garbage men in Louisville. Let's just start, let's learn the, this world. And so the city set us up with this crew. They called them a tipping crew, two guys in the back and a driver. And we were told where they'll be, what time in the morning. And we drove out there and we couldn't keep up with them. They were so fast that we had to drive, jump out, film, drive, jump out, film, drive, jump out and film. So we did that for about 45 minutes. And then they sort of pulled into a neighborhood and they slowed down a bit, turned around and said, what the hell are you guys doing? Why would you want to film us? So they didn't realize at the beginning that you were following them? They did, but they didn't know why. Okay. Why would you want to? Right. And then we learned their opinion of their job and it made that question even more, more uh, understandable. And I just said, nobody knows what you do. We want to tell your story. We, we want to let people know because we all need you. We can all ignore you, but you're doing amazing. You know, you're doing the job that we need. Yeah. And then we found out that they don't even tell people they're garbage men, right? They, they don't even tell people. So that was another, why would you film us? We don't even talk about this with, our, with people we know. And it's like, by, like the American so caste system, in a sense. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right? exactly. And, and in a lot of other countries, we wouldn't have been talking to them probably, or, or they wouldn't have been talking to us. It would have been much more structured like that, which would suck. And because we wanted to tell their story, they opened right up and we got amazing footage, amazing footage. And we actually went back to one of their guys, one of the guys' houses to party with them afterwards. It was, it was cool. It was really cool. And, and, you know, it's the curiosity thing that I think is, is for me, what, what helps me tell stories is, is um, wanting to know what someone's going to wants to say. And, and when you ask someone who, there's different things. If you're talking to people who talk all the time to the press, then you're going to get something concocted. Usually you're going to get something very well crafted. They're used to it. But when you talk to people who one, aren't used to talking to the press and two, no one asks and you're really sincere about it and you're respectful in the way you listen to them, which is what I've learned. And I learned it that minute, that day. Um, it, it creates comfort for people and then they say stuff you're like do you realize i'm still filming you you know i'm glad you said that but wow and um and that comes that kind of stuff that comes from my dad and my grandmother and my mom being really curious about people and able to ask very personal questions in a way that's not intrusive you know like and and that that 
those are the building blocks for stories when you can get truth out of people, right? You know, it, it, I, I'm, I'm part of a part of a sort of a men's group, and and when we just sit around and just sort of say what's really going on in our lives, just tell the story of the day or that week or what's going on. I don't understand it, but it's healing. It feels really good to be in a group of people telling the truth. There's something about resonance, I think, that happens in a, in a setting like that, you know, where it may not be your story, may not be yeah. my story, but there's some part of me that resonates when that other person is telling it. I agree. It's the resonance and it's the trust. It's the fact that we've created a space that we know we can say what we need to say. And so everyone comes into it with that in line. You know, it goes off a little bit. You've got to straighten somebody out a little bit. But, but just, I don't know what it is, man, but, but a human being telling another human being the truth, knowing that they're heard. And so we talk about stories, but we should talk about being heard. Like the power of someone listening to you is, is incredibly strong. Um, I was just at a conference this weekend with a bunch of, uh, um, it's called Newsgeist. They do one in the U.S., they do one in Europe, and they do one in South America. It's N-E-W-S-G-E-I-S-T, Newsgeist. They have people from Google, Facebook, New York Times, just a lot of independent folks, but a lot of, you know, like the news director for Google, right? The, the folks who are working that feed, the folks at Facebook that are working that feed, and all the talk about, hey, did you help Trump win the election, and all that stuff, you know, very much in the, in the conversation. And... Um, and I w it, it's really interesting. You sort of create your own uh, conference. So you get there and you say, I'd like to talk about this. Well, I'd like to talk about that. And then they sort of pick the ones that sort of resonate. And then that's our conference. And mm -hmm. so uh, mm -hmm. one of them was the hashtag me too. It was a conference. There was a, set, a session about that. Yeah. And um, it was, there was more men than the women expected in that particular breakout session. And what I got from listening to all the women speak in that meeting and also from my own experience of understanding people and, and especially, you know, women I've met who've been abused one way or the other in the past is the worst thing that happens for someone who's been abused is when they go to the boss who's above the abuser usually and says, this just happened to me. And the boss just disregards it. It didn't happen. Yeah. I'm not going to do anything about it. And then that, that according to the people in the room, and I believe them, that increases the PTSD, that increases, because you're not getting the flow out of you. It's like, we need to tell stories. And then if they get blocked, especially the personal ones, especially the trauma, it actually makes it much, much worse. You know, like if you're a child and you're afraid and your, your, your parents don't acknowledge that. There's actually physio there's physical chemical reactions in your body to that moment that actually hurt you if you're not able to express it. Yeah. And they can actually create epigenic change. Yeah. You know, lasting damage, lasting damage. Lasting, lasting damage from not being able to tell your story, especially if something's wrong. Yeah. Think about you're that. If that's the way our bodies are wired, that we need to tell our story to be healthy, right? I'm just thinking out loud here, but yeah, yeah. That's, that's a pretty good reason why we like stories, right? I mean, it's like, it's a part of our health. It certainly indicates that the, there's something about the potency of that which 
implies and illustrates and exemplifies, etc. How profound telling is. Telling, exactly. Telling is. Yeah. You know? And I, I didn't he feel heard when I was a kid, you know. There was many times where I was scared and it wasn't like, oh, here, let me help you walk through that fear. It was like anger at me being scared. And that cost me, you know. So yeah. I, I yeah. had to work to get through that. It's not a poor me's thing. It's just a fact. It's just, there's, there it is. Um, and, um, well, it puts me in mind of, of something I was, I was involved with back in the early 1990s. There was a guy in Munich um, who had put together uh, well, a concept, you know, which unrolled to, be, to become a reality called the World Uranium Hearings. And that worked on that power. And basically what he did was he invited people from indigenous nations around the planet who in one way or another had been victimized by the uranium industry, whether that was, you know, living on site where there was mining happening as it did for the Navajo nation, one among many, or whether there was atmospheric testing over their heads as it happened in the Pacific Island nations and some of the Australian nations, whether they were, um, you know, the result of, of drifting from nuclear power leaks, whatever the case may have been, they had never been heard because of the national agenda to suppress any kind of damage and especially any damage that had implications for human rights. Right. And so, you know, this was not, this was not a, this was not a trial. This wasn't a situation where there was indictments being brought up. It was just giving people a panel of listeners so they could come and tell their stories. And it was hugely powerful. So there was a panel of listeners or the audience was the listeners and the panel was people telling their story. It was, it was, it was, I actually, I, I did all of my, um, my support for that and advising from the States. So I never actually attended one of the hearings in person. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was helping them with other issues, but uh, my understanding of it was that it was people giving testimonies. And then there was basically a small group that were bearing witness, you know, in the Quaker sense of bearing mm -hmm. witness. You know, they, I mean, the Quakers have been so powerful about that over, over time. Can you, can you give me a little nugget of the Quaker sense? I don't know the Quaker. I know the Quakers, but I don't know exactly what you mean there. And again, this is something I've only peripherally because I wasn't raised as a Quaker, but something okay. that really impressed me a lot at the time. Um, and it, it first came up then and then there was another example of that um well the the, the from, from what i understand and, and you know maybe someone later will contact one of us and give us a, a lot more clarity from a from a direct quaker perspective on this yep. but it's it's that potency really of having someone say i see you know i see what's happening you're not alone you know this yeah. is this it, it it's just as simple as it sounds you know, to bear witness. Um, there was a Gertrude, yeah, Gertrude, Gertrude Blome, who was, um, she's dead now. She was a, an ethnographer in uh, um, San Cristobal de las Casas in Mexico. And she did a lot of work with the Lacandon Maya community. And these are the, uh, one of the more northern uh, communities of Mayan people who are traditional rainforest residents in the Lacondon, uh, Selva Lacondon in, in Mexico. And, you know, 
having this same kind of uh, you know national government imposing on them and taking away their land and you know, torturing and murdering and kidnapping and the, the whole horrible horrible chain of events that seems to accompany almost inevitably when a nation state dominates a traditional original population and she did it through photography and stories and it was the same the same kind of process it's like you're not doing this alone this is not happening to you in obscurity and you might think that well what they needed was someone to come in there and actually intervene right to, to provide justice right to provide justice to provide some sort of intervention uh to stand between them and the oppressor force but that's not always possible right but the hearing even that I, I had a bike stolen. I lived in LA for a long time and we were just getting ready to move back to Kentucky and my bike was stolen. And I thought, okay, this is just LA giving me a kick in the butt, right? You know, can't believe my bike was stolen. And I went and reported it to the cops and the cop at the police station, he was empathetic. And he said, man, that sucks. I can't believe someone stole your bike. And he meant it. And it, it impressed me so much. I tell people that story and it's nine years ago. Just his empathy and his like, he listened, you know. Um, I had a, another experience in Los Angeles uh, about 23 years prior to that, where we lived in a really bad part of town. And um, we were walking to a taco stand on a Saturday night at midnight. And we got mugged. And we were at the police station reporting one of our girlfriend's cars being stolen. And I mentioned the mugging and he just looked at me like, well, yeah, of course you got mugged, you idiot. You know, you were in that spot on a Saturday night at midnight. Why wouldn't you have gotten mugged? You know, it was a very different kind of cop experience of ones like empathetic. Like, yeah, yeah. But, you know, just being heard is I hadn't put that together in storytelling before. But being heard, like in a relationship, when someone's listening to you, it's powerful. It's very, very powerful. So then the good storyteller is just like filling that need, right? And telling you more. And you're, you're listening to them, so I guess you're filling a need of the storytellers too, right? Why would Canadians want to be on I stage? Think, <laughs> I, I think, you know, like, like we said earlier, that this, this factor of resonance Right, and so that resonance can, I, I think it can manifest in a number of different ways, but one of the ways it's, it's common is that you identify, and you might not be identifying with the actual situation, but you might be identifying with the emotional response that the person yeah. you're hearing about is exhibiting, for instance. So, it, uh, you know, an ideal story, a powerful story, I think has that element in it where the listener suspends the, the separation between themselves as a listener and the narrative and they actually while they're listening they are in the story right that's that's the goal right right that's the goal and that's why i love comedians who tell long stories you know i just i get so, i just love it you know because they're really they got me and yeah i had a, was a comedian and he would tell these great stories at dinner and i was like you gotta just do that on stage, man. And he just never got himself over the, the real quick jokes with the real quick laughs and uh -huh. trust. I guess he, he just didn't know he had the skill, but he did um, to hold an audience for a 10 minute story or a 15 minute story. I love him. I love him. And I, I you know, when I think of storytelling, like um, 
sometimes I think of it as a way to get what you want, right? And it feels a little crass right now with the way we're talking about stories, but um, I, I lived in a, in a house in Hollywood and four of us moved in, my buddy and I, who ended up making that movie and our girlfriends. And my girlfriend and I broke up, so she left, so we were three and the rent was gonna go up for all of us and we couldn't afford it. And so we were gonna have to move out. And so we looked at all these places all around town and then I realized that the landowner, our place had been empty for at least a year before we moved in. And they had another uh, house just to the back of us that was still empty the whole time we were there. So I just did the math and I said, if we leave this house now, your record shows that you're not gonna fill it for at least nine months. And the amount of money we would have paid you for that nine months is X. If you lower our rent to where we can afford it, sort of like just remove that, that quarter and just make it, you know, 75% of what we're paying, it will take you, you know, nine years or eight years to, to like make up that difference. We know you're going to lose it this year, but you, or you could lose it over nine years and have a tenant in here this whole time. And they bought it. They, I made the case and they bought it. And so we, I lived in that house for 18 years. They got my rent for 18 years. So it was very valuable to them. And it enabled me to stay in this house. And we made lots of movies and music videos and lots of music and had great parties. And so that house had a lot of stories in and of itself. Yeah. There's one story in that house that I still haven't solved the mystery yet. We had this um, countertop between the dining area and the living area that had a little corner thing that you could put books in or little art pieces and stuff like that. And when I, and it had a bookshelf at the bottom. And when I took all my records out of the bookshelf, I saw a door that I'd never seen before. And I'd been in the house like 15 years at this point. And I opened up the little door and it opened up. And inside was this photograph of a young 15 year old boy that was a black and white photograph, looked like the fifties and it was painted like so that it was toned. Uh -huh. I don't know how they look. Yeah. I could never, I don't know what the story is there. Like, I still don't know what that story is. It creeped me out in a way. And I just, just why would someone put that picture? To, you know, like, I don't know the story. Yeah, you know? it in. I just, I could guess, we guessed, but we never did figure that one out. And possibly what you guessed was more interesting than the reality. Possibly, yeah. Or at least more nuanced or varied. Yeah, well, we knew that the, it was a house owned by the church on the corner. So we paid our, our landlord was the Lord. And we, uh, so we knew our house was, the organist lived there for a long time. And so I just, I'm guessing that it's the organist's son is the only thing I could figure. But no one at the church knew who that was, who was still alive. No one still knew. So then when I tell my students, you know, Stories are important. You need to learn how to tell stories. Even if you never make a movie again after my class, you'll learn how to tell a story and that might enable you uh, to get a job. It might enable you to create a job, you know, because a lot of my students are journalists and the other half are sustainability students. So sustainability students have to learn the language of the business they're trying to help become sustainable. And a lot of times that means they have to learn the CFO's language as much as their own language. And learning how to navigate that and tell stories around that is, uh, is critical. And so that's how I look at storytelling sort of in my work um, as a way to sort of get what you want out of the world if you're 
doing something good even better. I, it's just how I look at it. I, I think that two of the most ancient, two, two of the most, uh, you know, um, deeply embedded traits of being a human that go back as far as we can go are storytelling mm -hmm. and tools and tools. And we often say, well, you know, what does it mean to be a human being? And one of the things that comes up uh, you know, very, very quickly is, well, you know, we're the ones who actually make and use tools, right? right? And so what is a tool? A tool is, is something you devise in order to uh, be able to increase your abilities in terms of the way you work with your, your environment. You know, it's whether it's extracting food or, or carrying more weight or, or a weapon, um, can be a lot of things, or a means of communication. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a break now, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. We're chatting with Peter Bick from Soil Carbon Cowboys. So we're telling stories about the tools we're using and we're using stories as the tool to engage. So there's, there's, a, there's a coming together there of these two very, very profound elements that I think is, is well, personally, I find it very intriguing. Um, but I think there's power in that as well. Yeah, there's a lot there. And what I thought you were gonna talk about was the tools that I'm using to help tell those stories, the camera, the microphone, the editing system, the software, and like just those tools themselves are so much better and cheaper and smaller now. You know, I remember when the moment happened where I could have a, a film studio in my backpack, you know, it happened for me, it happened around 2007 when I was making Carbon Nation. Yeah, I, had, I had everything in my backpack I needed to make a movie, everything, and broadcast it like the whole kit. And when I started in film school in 82, that just, just no way in God's green earth you could have that, you know, just no way, no how. And so just the tools themselves um, have enabled so many more stories to get told. The tool of the internet, the tool of YouTube, the tool of Vimeo, the, all those tools. Um, you know, I wasn't really in tune with people until I started trying to make documentaries and that helped me learn more about people. And, and it's been a long journey for me just being able to be empathetic and aware and listen. You know, as a storyteller, I had a lot of listening to do, right? I, I had a lot of listening to do. I think story listening is as important as storytelling. I think, I really do. And as, as being able to hear criticism and make your film better, being able to hear criticism and make your farm better, being able to hear criticism and make your grocery store better or make your government better. You know, how many people do we feel are really good listeners who can take good criticism and act on it, right? That's a skill set. You know, and, and Bill Clinton, you know, he made a lot of headlines with, I feel your pain. 
you know, in the 92 election. And you'd never heard a politician say that before. And, and even if he, you know, I kind of think he was genuine about it, quite frankly. I know he was in, you know, there was a slippery slot side to him over, you know, but I thought that one actually was true. And that's why he became, that helped him. And I think that's what Oprah is all about, is listening. Yeah, for sure. She, and, and giving voice to these, to the folks who she brings on her show and letting them have a megaphone. Not only does she listen, but she's got a big old megaphone. So she's listening with millions of people because they want to hear her listen. You know, I think that was it. That was the power of that. It's, it's not it like a little thing. It's it like a huge thing. And so now you and I talk about, you know, soil, you know, and, and the state of our soil on earth right now is a very dangerous state. You know, I know some really, really smart scientists that are much more worried about our soils than they are about climate change. And they're really worried about climate change. And so now you've got these innovative farmers who are also worried because they see it first and they're coming up with ways of regenerating their soil while making a profit and creating really healthy food. And, and that's the story I want to tell right now. You know, that's, that's what I'm committed to right now is telling these innovative farmers stories. And, and we need science. We need to verify what they're saying compared to conventional because conventional is so large, so entrenched that to get the story out of what regenerative agriculture can be, you've got to be telling a lot of stories, right? And, and have, and have data to back it up. Um, and so in that regard, uh, you know, so I'm working just as hard on fundraising for science as I am on making the movies and I see them all together, like the telling of the stories and the, the scientists in the field and the data they'll collect and the farmers, because the farmers are the original scientists, but they weren't telling the story very much. They were telling it to each other. So then I show up with a camera and they're grateful. You know, they're grateful. They're, Thank you, Peter, for telling our story. You've, you've got a lot more people learning about us now. And, and you know, and the fact that this, it's this great blending of, you know, sort of a liberal, progressive me and a much more conservative them, you know, and we find this common ground, which is actually the ground, you know, the story hunt of where's their commonality, not trying to change anyone's mind, but where, where are we already agreeing? And then we'll hear each other's stories better. And, and, and I just see such great promise in bringing people together with this agricultural story. I really do. It, I, I see it happening already in my own personal experience where I'm with a farmer for a day and a half. We've had three meals together. We've been out. I've been filming him. I'm talking to him. And then at dinner the second night, he says, you know, I, I could never vote for a Democrat. And I said, God, that's funny because I could never vote for a Republican except for this one guy, Howard Baker, who works in the Reagan administration, or he was a senator in the 80s. And I liked him a lot. And we laugh about it because we both know that's our difference, but we don't let that define the conversation because we didn't start with that. If we had started with that, we wouldn't have gotten to his farm. We wouldn't have gotten to yeah. the fact that we agreed. But because we started on his farm about I make these movies his consultant knows me. I've been introduced as this guy who made that film, so you could see that film. You know, that's how it worked. We, we started on, on a more common piece of land. Uh, and it's just, it's, no one's expecting that right now. Everyone's expecting such polarization, and these stories people are buying are so damaging because they cut us off from talking to each other and cut us off from that potential of finding 
of finding common ground. And so, yeah, I mean, talk about storytelling, right? I, I'm raising money. That is a story. We have to tell our story. And if I do it well, are they ready to hear it? Whoever it is I'm asking for money, does it fit their story? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and absolutely. absolutely. And, and there's, there's another element in that too, in, in that the way I believe that we decide to support something or affiliate even with it, mm -hmm. it happens on an emotional level. You know, we, 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 sometimes it's almost like an invisible heart-to-heart -heart connection, or it might be a heart-to-issue connection or a heart-to-story connection. But it happens, all of that happens fairly instantaneously, actually. And maybe that comes back again to that whole topic of resonance. But we make the, we make the decision pretty quick and normally subconsciously. And then what do we do? We immediately flip into the logical process and we look for evidence to support what we've already decided is our position. And that's where the science has to come in or that's where the comparative stories have to come in. If you're a farmer and you've had a certain result in your field and you talk to your, your neighbors and you know, a couple of the other guys you, you meet down at the, the store or whatever, and they've got a story that fits your story, that's a different form of gathering evidence, but we're still looking for concreteness. And you look at, um, I'm with you 100%. Uh, this is a yes and. And you look at how uh, Google News, Facebook are designed. They're designed to keep giving you your story so you stay on their platform so they can sell advertising, right? I don't look at that in judgment. I think, look what they discovered, look what they designed, good on them, right? They, they, I didn't think of that, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They thought of that. And I use Google all the time, right? And, and, but the trick is, I was, I was at this conference this week in Newsgeist, and the guy who runs Google News and his team were there, and this guy from Yahoo was there, and, and I was just saying, you know, why don't you give me a button to open up my mind a little bit? You know, why don't you give me a, an option to get me on the other side of that conversation or another nuance of that conversation. You have it in your system. You know exactly where it is. You know exactly what video to show me if I want a little bit more right or a little bit more left. And, and they, some had thought about it. They thought about it in different ways. Um, could they do it? Do they have the technology? And of course they do. So can they tell the story that that's a value? Will it be used? You know, those are all the, the questions, but they were thinking about it. And, and to me, if I'm on, like the New York Times right now is doing that. There's, there's some articles where a big issue comes up and they say, here's what the rest of the press is talking about on this. And they have paragraphs from other publications across the spectrum. And I love it. I love it. And, you know, you read these things to, to, uh, to verify your own thinking a lot of times. And that's that sort of echo yeah. to and even in that right-left thing that the New York Times is doing, I'm reading the right to see, have they come around yet? Do they see how bad the situation is yet? You know? And so I'm still kind of doing that. I'm still kind of looking for verification of my point of view. But um, I love hearing another person's point of view. Like, I, I, I love it. And I love it when it can be constructive. Like... Um, I've got a friend in Louisville, Kentucky. He, he's, I mean, he's more libertarian than any Tea Party person ever was. I mean, he thinks the government maybe should be in defense and that's it. And then everything else should be free market and hands off and like roads, schools, hospitals, 
utilities, just everything. And we talk on stuff and, and I sometimes I'm just shaking my head like, do you really think that? Do you really, really think that? And, and it's fun in a way because we're hearing each other and we're not yelling at each other and we're having dinner, you know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I just think that opportunity, you know, I, you're hearing it a lot right now. You're hearing it a whole lot. Like, just go meet someone who's different from you. You know, just go listen. You know, people are begging people to go do that, right? And that's like the, you know, the, the U.S. Senate, the, the mythology of the U.S. Senate is you have these guys who voted differently at four in the afternoon and then went and had drinks and dinner, you know, and their families had vacations together or they, you know, would go to someone's house and they knew each other's kids as they grew up and they, they could be human beings together. And, and that's missing right now. And I think that's costing us a lot. And I don't think, I don't think the average human being wants that. I really don't. I think when you find out that the person you think hates you doesn't, it's a very powerful moment. And I've had that moment happen a lot, especially as we put out carbon nation, you know, it's about solutions to climate change and skeptics don't even think climate change is real. And I meet these skeptics and they like already assume I think they're an idiot because they don't believe in climate change. And they already assume I'm judging them for all sorts of stuff. And then when they find out I'm not, thinking they're an idiot, but I want to hear what they have to say. It's a totally different conversation. And um, I know a lot of people. And then there's this moment where, you know, when I find out they don't think I'm in, when I find out they don't think I'm an idiot, it's, it's, it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice and, moment, for sure. So that's a story. That's a story with a lot of reinforcement. You can watch TV all day long. Like, there's no TV on in my house, not just because you and I are talking right now, but we don't leave the TV on. I'm pointing to where the TV is on that wall over there. We don't leave the TV on. And I go to the gym and they just left the TV on and all that stuff just gets in your brain. And how many people leave the TV on? So it's just, it's just getting in there. Yeah, and I find that very, very, de- very depressing, my, actually, myself, to, to exactly. sit in a room trying to visit with people with this thing going on. I can't, I can't not watch TV. If it's on, so it's I'm compelling. Like, if you want me to talk with you, we got to turn that off. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's it's compelling. Let's look at let's look at that other element of um, the story mix that you just mentioned briefly, but but I'd like to go into a little further, which is, you know, when you, we're talking about constructing the scientific case for yeah. some of what's for. for well, for, for the climate carbon balance, for the way in which soil life, uh, you know, all this invisible activity is happening and the importance of that, uh, the different ways in which uh, soil quality impacts not just, not just income for farmers, but things like, like resilience against flood and drought, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've got to go back now to the, some of the scientific uh, research which supports those factors and the understanding of those factors. But the majority of scientific papers I've read and the majority of scientific researchers I've spoken with cannot speak normal language yeah. to normal listeners. Yeah. So the, also I think as the story, kind of the story manager almost, you know, you, you sit in, in, in the center in some ways of, of constructing or, or facilitating the story to emerge. Yeah. 
you have that ability to be able to draw forth the the information from the researchers and either help them to tell it in a a more accessible manner or just kind of restate it in a way that is accessible. But I think that's, I mean, others have spoken about that, about the barriers between researchers and the public. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot to be said there. You know, Alan Alda has this science literacy thing at, at, at New York, uh, was it New York University at, at SUNY, or State University of New York, Long Island. And, you know, there's, there's other things in other universities, uh, uh, the Metcalf Institute at University of Rhode Island, to teach journalists and scientists. They get mid-career people in both industries to spend the two weeks together so they learn each other's language. Right, so that the journalist learns how to talk about science, and the scientist learns how to talk about journalism. There's a great uh, show on the radio here called Science Friday. I don't know if you remember that when you were in the U.S., no. but no. it's I listen to it every week. I do a two-hour yoga once a week, and I'm listening to Science Friday when I do that two-hour yoga. And, I'll see if I can find it. Oh, it's great. It's called ScienceFriday.com, and 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 you and they've got a really nice interface. You just have to say, listen to entire episode and you'll get into their interface. We can just listen to the bits you want. And, um, and today they had the woman who runs the Gates Foundation right now, who's basically her, her, her message today was, hey, you scientists, get out of the ivory tower and go join a community. You know, go be part of the PTA. If you're at your church, talk about what you're doing. Listen to what other people are doing. Get out there because people don't know you, right? And then they had this other scientist on who she was talking about this killer snail, <laughs> you know, this snail that like can kill a human being if, if you scare it and it barbs you and it's on lots of beaches. But that venom could be used for medicine because have you ever heard that thing where, you know, Poison is only, uh, or venom is only at concentration. Like if you had just a little bit of it, it could actually be a, a medicine. It's just if you have a lot of it, it could kill I've, you. I've, I've seen different cases where, that's, where yeah. that's the case, yeah. That concept of, it's not all bad if you just get a little bit of it. I, and this, I love this, that. And, this snail is from like the Pacific Ocean, right? The South Pacific yeah. somewhere? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I've, it's I've over read about there. That. It's like called the horn or the hook worm or something. Anyway, she was great. She, everything she said, I understood completely. She was enthusiastic. She was great. I don't even want to tell a story about those snails, but I was thinking about getting in touch with her just because there's a scientist who can communicate, right? Yeah. Those yeah. are the gold mines. And, and there's a guy on our team named Jonathan Lundgren, who's, a, who's our bug scientist. He's really good. Like the minute I talked to him on the phone, I knew he'd be really good on camera, right? Because he was telling me what he was doing in language I could understand. This and is so, so important. So yeah, important. In the, in the tra- was so much a treasure. And, and in the training of young researchers, you know, people going through their formation, like, this should be a required aspect of that is communicating science. But check this out. Um, I was at a, a, a U.S. government uh, co- university collab kind of thing. that had a lot of environmental scientists there. And I was brought in to say, you know, how do you talk positively about climate change, right? Because everyone's flummoxed. They're like, people want solutions. So we got to, you know, that kind of thing. And the first kind of barrier that came up that made a lot of sense to me was all the scientists in the room or a lot of them said, hey, listen, I'm not studying the solutions. I'm an expert on the problem. So I can't speak as an expert 
on these solutions you're talking about because I'm an expert on these problems. I said, okay, that's valid. That's a valid point. So, so you need training in some of these solutions or you need to be paired with someone who's trained in those solutions. So you bring up the problem, they bring up the solution. I get that. That's a real problem. But the other problem they were talking about, which is completely human made, is again, not being able to tell their story, being hampered by this cultural uh, rule that if a scientist tells you what that scientist thinks, then they've lost their credibility. Yeah, their objectivity. Which objectivity, credibility is the word they use. Yeah, yeah. And, and I said to them, I said, okay, I have a hard time with that and here's why. And this is again, is sort of a US based answer, but it would work anyway. I'm in the US, I'm paying you as a taxpayer all this money for you to do research. You are the expert. You've been studying this for 20 years, 30 years. You've studied under experts who had 50 years, 40 years of experience. You're the part of this lineage of knowledge. And yet your own industry is telling you that if you tell me what you think, you will lose credibility and therefore you won't get that funding and therefore your career will suck. Don't you see that's like this bind you guys have given yourselves that, that doesn't help? So they're bound by this ethical rule that by telling me their opinion, they'll lose credibility. But all the people who think climate change is a hoax aren't bound by anything. They're not bound by anything. That's and so true. It's this, it's this self-defeating conundrum that they've given themselves that doesn't have to be there. And so that was, and I see that in journalists as well. So I teach at a journalism school and, and you know, my students come in saying, well, we need to be objective. We need to show both sides of the story. Right. And, and I say, well, you just choosing to do that story is subjective. Just the fact that you chose to talk about that thing is subjective where your editor puts it in the newspaper above the fold, below the fold on, you know, how it's searched for. It's all subjective. So just lose the notion that it's, subjective objective but do a good job of backing up everything you say you know just just do good journalism research so that everything you say has three sources what an old-fashioned idea you know just do a good job of being a journalist but don't think that it's objective don't don't get caught in that because then you then you have to do this he's for he this scientist thinks climate this scientist knows climate change is real this scientist says that you know it's fake now, so you got to have both sides, but it's these false equivalencies. Well, you end up, with a, end up with a wash. You end up with just a total with, wash. It's just like it's even, no it's perspective. Yeah, the perspective is even further from the actual truth. But this, this woman from the Gates Foundation was saying something else that you hear a lot now when you're listening to scientists, and it's something that I didn't know. And I think it's something that in our research, as we promote or, uh, you know, tell the story of our research, no matter what the data is, one, be really honest of our data, two, understand that human beings are analyzing the data, so how do we get enough peer review to make sure that we're analyzing it correctly? Those sorts of rigor things we have to do. But the really important thing about science that I don't think anyone gets taught is that science is a continuum. 
and, and, and the story of science is ever moving. And so, so that when you hear, you know, you all thought there was a, uh, a, uh, an ice age that was coming in the early 70s, and now you say climate change is happening, and people look at that as diametrically opposed. Well, yeah, they did have evidence of, of an ice age starting up, and because we've warmed up, it's, it's, it's taking care of that, right? And, and to understand that, you know, everything's moving forward so that things will be discovered that, you know what, we had that wrong, now we know this. And, and for scientists to, when they promote their work, to promote it as, this is what we know right now. And the journalists don't like that so much. They want to say this brand new thing that is evident. Chocolate is good for you, right? And, and, and well, we know that these pieces of chocolate are good for you, this, these elements of it, but we don't. It's really tricky because the news world is fly a flag, get everyone's attention. And the scientists that are working their butts off, they get a paper out, they want it to have attention, right? So they want to do that flag waving, but in a way, you got to also have this nuance of this is what we know right now. And our journalism world is not built for that right now, but that's part of the problem. But I never was taught that in high school, you know, you know, science, what they discovered right now, you know, that's going to change. And then that scientist could say, yeah, I was wrong about that, but now we know this. And that kind of nuance is what's missing in the science story that I'm learning from listening to Science Friday, basically, quite frankly. It's, it's the scientific process somehow has to be embedded in this, each scientific story to remind the listener that things evolve and that it's an exploration. And that's okay. And you know, these folks are like, I don't trust scientists and all that stuff. I'm like, did you get on a plane anytime recently? You trusted scientists with your life. Do you drive? You're trusting scientists and engineers with your life. It's like, like this disconnect that, you know, it just doesn't, I don't get it myself, but so what are you gonna do? Um, I don't, you know, I'm skeptical of the government many, many times. Absolutely. Um, but I don't look at the science that the government funds as necessarily just inherently, you know, uh, suspect, but there is science that's funded that is suspect. You got to follow the money. You got to figure out who's doing the research and why. Right. So there's, there's always that you got to be, you got to be aware. Where do you, where do you think the next stories need to be explored and told in, in terms of kind of pulling together and moving forward the potential for regenerative? I think what we're talking about just, just now, the idea that you have to understand that this is a, this is a evolving subject and what we've discovered today, we might discover something much more, detailed later that might seem to contradict this, but if we didn't know this and go on that journey to study that and find out the next thing, we never would have gotten there. So that iteration of science, I think, is really important in general. On the regenerative side of things, I believe, I've been told by a lot of people who are very wise and have been in this world for a long time that science alone is not going to change anyone's mind, right? It's just not going to change anyone's mind. So I think 
that the science coupled with rancher experience, farmer experience is the way that the stories will be heard. Um, I think finding out are these farmers making more money than their conventionally farming, grazing neighbors? I think that's a big piece of the puzzle. I think it's a big piece of the puzzle. Um, and then just being able to find out what's different. If you manage differently, what is different? And I've been on enough farms and ranches around North America and a little bit in Europe or in England, um, that part of Europe, that I'm seeing amazing regenerative things happening, amazingly regenerative things happening on these, all using the same kind of universal rules of, of getting the animals in one big herd and letting them hit the land for a short period of time and then move on and let that land rest. That, that kind of thing. Uh, dry land, you'll have less animals in a bigger paddock. Wet land, you'll have more animals in a smaller paddock. Those are the things that are different, but the idea of get all your animals in one herd, move them around more than you have, a lot more than you have, to replicate the way a herd moved around. That concept seems to really help the water cycle tremendously, right? And when when you, when you look at regenerative practice, a lot of your stories have been around grazing. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and yet there are people out there who are saying, well, we need to just take livestock production out of the system because the earth can't afford right. uh, either yeah. the grain use or the land use or the methane production or, or, yep. or what have you. Yep. So being familiar with both those, Mm -hmm. both those perspectives or both those, those positions. Um, what would you say to either one about the other? Yeah, well, you, there's a couple different fronts here. So from the regenerative grazing perspective, over here are the folks who don't want anyone to eat meat and who, who can make a case for animal production has gotten really dangerous for the planet, right? Make that case. Then over here, you've got the conventional animal production folks who might want a little bit of change, but don't really, right? And so, so there's many fronts from that position of the, the regenerative grazer, the regenerative farmer. Um, one, I would say that the first thing I'd say is a lesson that I learned from one of my first educators on this is a guy named John Wick who helped form the, carbon, the Marin Carbon Project. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, an environmentalist. He bought a ranch with his wife in Marin County. It was being leased out for grazing. And the first thing he did was say, get those animals off the land. Just out of, that's what you do. You don't want grazing on your land. It must be damaging for it. And then he watched his land collapse. So even if they weren't grazing really well, he watched the land collapse because that animal input is really important for the health of that land. Now, 200 years ago, that would have been elk going through and not cattle, but the elk aren't going through because everyone's got a fence. So, so you can use cattle as a, as a, as a um, analog yeah. for what was happening there. So that's, but so, so he taught me that and I was like, wow, that's amazing. I never would have guessed that. So that was the beginning of my education down this road of grazing as a healing source, as opposed to a destructive source. Um, and, and so I would say to anyone who says, get the animals off the land, that, that let's show the story of what happens to the land when the animals are taken off and what happens to the land when the animals are grazed regeneratively 
and what happens to the land when the animals are grazed destructively. Like, let's look at all that. And right now they're not getting the image of the regenerative grazing. They're not getting that at all. So that's a story that needs to be told, right? And so I can't judge anyone for thinking that because I used to think that, you know, that grazing was bad. And then, um, so there's that one. And then the idea of all the grain that's grown for the animals, do you need all that grain grown, right? Do you need to feed the animals this grain? So that's a big debate, right? And then how do you grow that grain? Can you grow that grain regeneratively? If you insist on feeding the animals grain, can you grow that grain to where it's regenerative? And right now, it's far from it on the whole of how we grow that grain. Um, in Iowa, this is from the USDA uh, ARS, the uh, Agricultural Research Service. For every pound of corn harvested in Iowa, two pounds of soil is lost to erosion. Talk about unsustainable. How does that, and that's been going on for a long time, and that's the way the system's set up. So I'm not even talking about the nitrogen inputs and the, the fossil fuel needs and the how many track, how many times, I'm not talking about the plowing. Well, I am talking about the plowing because that's what's loosening the soil for that erosion to happen. And, and so there's ways to grow corn where that doesn't happen with a cover crop and with drills and no-till. And, and so, but is that being done at scale? Starting to be. And why not have the animals graze the same land that you're growing the corn on so you have that free manure cycling and stuff like that. You know, Wendell Berry said that when we took row crop production, when we removed row crop production from animal production, we made them separate things, we took a great solution and made two huge problems. You know? And so the thing that I'm seeing is the folks that are focused on starting with nature, as my buddy Russ Concer says, letting nature have a seat at the table, who are using those natural engines, the soil microbial life, the mycorrhizal fungi, water cycling, cover crops, doing things that nature would do. Nature doesn't plow a field and leave it just without any plants growing on it for most of the year. And then for the rest of the year, you know, you have that row of crop and then that other bit that's soil and then that next row of crop. And then when that crop's harvested, you know, you have a lot of soil there that could be easily washed away in any kind of rain event and is. Um, you know, when you start with nature, what would, what would nature do here? You're still a human being. You're still manipulating the system to produce food for humans. It's not like you, you know, just going back to being a hunter-gatherer or anything like that, it, it, you know, or a farmer 10,000 years ago. It's, it's, you know, even 10,000 years ago, when we put a shovel in the ground and we started cutting up the soil, that's when we started going against nature. Yeah, know? look at the Mediterranean. Classic yeah, there's example. a great... Yeah. Great author, David Montgomery. Have you ever read any of his books? His, his first book's called Dirt, and it's a history of, it's like a CSI history of civilizations dying because they didn't take care of their soil. And his second book is called uh, The Hidden Half of Nature, all about microbial life. I can't remember the name of his third book. I'm just looking to see if I have it here. But um, it, it's also about, it's just about the practitioners of this regenerative agriculture all around the world. And so there's a big movement right now that's, it's not really about organic or not, it's about soil health or not. And, and so if you're, if you're doing organic and you're focused on your soil health, you've got an amazing system. But if you're doing organic and you're leaving the 
fields fallow and you're drill, you're plowing a lot, you still have troubles. And there's a lot of organic grown both ways. And so some people are saying, hey, maybe organic's not the, the goal, but soil health is the goal. And that lets people, that lets you meet farmers where they are. If they don't want to give up their inputs yet, that you could start drawing them back and they could see, wow, I don't need to do all that. I don't need to use all that nitrogen if I plant legumes. And my water cycling's better. I thought those legumes were going to take my water, but now they're better. That sort of thing. That's all story. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's, it's the farmer is the scientist. It's the scientist coming in and saying, can I measure that against that? Can I measure you versus your neighbor? And then it's that analyst analysis. And then it's that story. So there's a hell of a lot of work here because there's a whole lot of folks who want to keep things the same and a whole lot of folks who don't want anyone to eat meat. And, and then there's a whole lot of folks who think that hydroponic production is as nutrient dense as soil health production. And now in the U.S. that was just voted. Yeah, I was gonna, I was going to mention that this, this has been all the the last week of conversation online. It's it's all been about this, uh, you know, extending the label, the organic label to soilless production. Yeah, and, and, and what so, that means. So again, organic's not covering it. Yeah. But if you had a soil health label for all food, and there's different people working on labels right now, so there's going to be a label fight, VHS and beta. There's going to be that thing. Um, but you know, I've got friends that are in that conversation. So I'm happy those folks are in that conversation, but that's storytelling. It's all storytelling. You know, I used to say when I was out with carbon nation that, you know, the fossil fuel industry are great storytellers, fantastic storytellers. You know, it's just how much of the, of their data about climate change and the science still being out was accurate, you know? Yeah. And what, what stories have we bought? Yeah, so storytelling in and of itself is not the answer. It's, 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 it's I guess, truthful storytelling is the answer. Do you, are you thinking of a next, like a shift in, in focus on what you want to tell next? It's funny. I, I, I'm, I don't in a big way because we've got so much work to do. You know, I, this takes a long commitment, and I'm, I'm making that commitment. But I was just talking to a guy yesterday, and he was telling me about this fur trade, fur trader guy who runs this little shop in Fairbanks, Alaska, who, you know, is this Athabascan Indian, Native uh-huh. American. And when he was 18, he got this letter saying, you're going to go fight in Korea. And he had never seen any, any of the machinery. You know, he was living a full-on Native American natural life out in the middle of, of the lushness. And all of a sudden he gets sent to the army, basic training, sent over to Korea. And he just had this knack. All of a sudden he realized, I understand Korean. After six months, just hearing it, he understood it. And then he understood Chinese. And so he became very much involved in the translation and very valuable, right? Because his own, for whatever reason, it just, he had that kind of brain. And then um, he made made Nixon's fur coat for when Nixon met with Brezhnev in the early 70s, because now he's he's a fur trader. And then he actually made Reagan's fur coat when Reagan met with Gorbachev in that first Glasnost meeting in Reykjavik. And 
he was thinking ahead. He's like, okay, so Gorbachev is going to wear bear because he's Russian. So I want to give you wolf on your, I want to have you have wolf trim because the wolf is the only animal that can actually attack a bear successfully. And like, as he was shaking hands with Gorbachev, Gorbachev said to Reagan, I'm wearing bear and here you're bringing wolf. Like it worked. Right. So it's uh-huh. this, yeah. this really cool character. And so I'm like, I want to go make a movie about him. You know what I mean? So I've, I've sort of kept myself away from the opportunity like that to keep telling those stories. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't want to not make those short films on those cool people. So in answer to your question, right now I'm focused on soil health. I'm focused on the grazing. I'm focused on the science. But I still want to have a, the ability to go tell these stories as I come across them. We don't know if that guy's still alive, but we're going to find out. So, yes, this decade of my 50s, I'm 53, is focused on soil health, but I might have a little, little journeys out. But I won't be making anything big or doing anything big outside of this, I don't think. The work is too important, and we're right in the middle of it. And if, uh, if we're kind of coming up to the end of the call here, yep. and um, if people want to find out more about your work, is Carbon Nation still the best place for them to go? Uh, soilcarboncowboys.com is sort of this. And if they go to carbonnation.tv, they'll, they'll get there too. We'll have it all cross-referenced. But mm-hmm. Soil Carbon Cowboys is, is, is the easiest way. You get to the movies, you get to a good description of the research we're doing, you get to meet the scientists. And then as we lock into the research, we'll, we'll put our proposals up there. We'll probably, pr- probably produ- uh, publish those on Medium and then just link to that. Um, Evan Williams, who started Medium, who helped start Twitter, he helped fund, in a major way, uh, Soil Carbon Cowboys. And so he helped start this ball rolling. So we asked that we publish stuff on Medium. I think it's a reasonable request. (laughs) Sounds sounds pretty good. Medium's a good place to do it, too. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks a million. And um, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. R-A-S-A dot A-G. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.